Would you take the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment. Recorded for us in Acts chapter 7 is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. Now I say recorded. I'm sure that there were much longer sermons. On one particular occasion, uh, Paul was with the church. He preached till midnight. So I would imagine that was a long sermon. We don't have the record of it, but he preached for a long time. I assure you, I will not preach till midnight. All right? So you don't have nothing to fear. But this is the message from Stephen, one of the deacons that was elected early on in Acts chapter 6. And we come to Acts chapter 7 here and... Acts 7 is the record of Stephen's sermon to, not to a crowd of people, but to the Sanhedrin council, uh, made up of the high priests and the Sadducees and Pharisees, and as we've noted already in the book of Acts, a great company of kindred. And it seems that God's people are getting in trouble with the Jewish authorities of the day, And this sermon begins in verse 2, without interruption, goes all the way to verse 53. That's quite a sermon. As I mentioned, this is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. The end of the sermon will end with the stoning and the death of Stephen. Now, I, I probably should not use the word death. The Bible says he slept. He fell asleep. Let us read the beginning here at Acts chapter 7, and um, the best I can, I know it's uh, 53 verses, and so I I will be unable to deal with the entirety of this sermon. I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon. That's interesting. But I'll deal with an introduction to the sermon. Notice Acts 7 verse 1 and 2, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, that's Stephen, Men, brethren, and fathers, and we'll begin the message with one word, hearken. I want to bring your attention to that word in verse 2 where Stephen says, hearken. Or another word you could use for that is, listen. You know, I think that uh, it's truly the desire for anybody that preaches the Bible faithfully to commend the attention of people and to say, listen, what I have to say is important. What Stephen has to say here is very important, particularly to those he is speaking to. He wants them to listen intently to what he has to say because it is of great importance and significance to them. Now the timeline leading up to the sermon is found in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. We read in verse 9, if you remember, leading up to this confrontation and Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin council and preaching this message, we see first of all in verse 9, there were a number of Jews called Libertines, Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, uh, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, they were of a particular synagogue, and they were, in verse 9, disputing with Stephen. So that's how this story with Stephen begins. And in verse 11 we read, 
that those Jews, they colluded, the word that is used as suborned, that means they colluded among themselves to bring false accusations against Stephen. And in verse 12, the Bible says, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And so we see then that the Jews caught Stephen and, if you would, we could say arrested him and brought him to the Sanhedrin council. Verse 13, we see that false witnesses testified against Stephen. And in verse 15, we find that Stephen seemed, the Bible says, it had been the face of an angel. They're looking as they're bringing those false accusations against Stephen, and they're looking steadfastly on him, and he had the face of an angel. What it tells us here is not that he was glowing, but rather that Stephen seemed to be undisturbed by the false witnesses, undisturbed by the threats. You would imagine that anybody, any normal person under such false witnesses, under such, such threat would be have some visible contrition, some visible signs of maybe a sweating or being disturbed or shouting, this is false, this is false. But Stephen was in perfect peace, just like an angel. An angel, what is an angel? Is a messenger of God. He's undisturbed by circumstances. All he is is a messenger of God delivering the message. And no matter what the circumstances are, he is faithful to deliver that message. If you would, he is outside, unaffected by circumstances. And so was Stephen in this moment. And so leading up here to this confrontation between the Sanhedrin Council and Stephen, we're going to find Stephen preaching, indeed, a wonderful message. It's going to take us some time to go through this message, but I would like to give an introduction to this particular message and deal with three things as we think about this message where Stephen says, hearken, listen, this is very important. Now, first of all, as we think about this message, I want to consider, first of all, the accusation of the Sanhedrin Council. What is the accusation? As we begin in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? And so we ask ourselves here, there are a number of accusations that are made in chapter 6, and now we come into chapter 7 before Stephen is going to preach this message, and the message that he's going to preach is going to is in the context of a number of accusations that are made against him and now the high priest looks at Stephen and says are these things so are those accusations right what do you have to say to yourself now what had Stephen been accused of? Before we come to the sermon, we have to ask ourselves this question, because that's what the, the question that the high priest asked him, what had Stephen been accused of? Well, the charge, if you think about one word, the charge was blasphemy. That's what we find. Notice in chapter 6, verse 11. They suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words. That's the charge. He is committed blasphemy again in verse 13. And they set up false witnesses and which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words. And so, 
you find that the direct charge that brought Stephen to the Sanhedrin council is this charge of blasphemy. It's not just speaking words. It's speaking according to them blasphemous words. Now, what is blasphemy? What does that mean? Well, the word blasphemy is really a combination of two words. The first part is the word blas, and then femi is the second part. The first part, uh, the first part of the word means, blas means to hinder or to injure. To hinder or to injure, to cause injury. That's the blast part. The second part of the word, femi, means a saying or a rumor. So they are accusing Stephen here of spreading injurious rumors. Now we're going to find about what. But that's the accusation. He is, uh, he is uh, speaking rumors. He is giving his ideas. He is giving his opinion. And what he is saying is bringing damage to the law. It's bringing damage to Moses. It's bringing damage to the temple. It's bringing damage to the Jewish religion. And that was their position. He has committed blasphemy. But what did Stephen bring injury according to them? As I mentioned, look at verse 11. They say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words. Here it is against Moses and against God. So he is spreading rumors about Moses, things that are injuring our prophet Moses. He is speaking injurious words about God. Notice verse 13. This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words. Here it is. Against this holy place and the law. Again in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So notice here, they are saying that Stephen opposed Moses, opposed God, opposed the law of Moses, and he is opposing the temple worship. But ultimately, the accusation is found right there. They can't get really away from it. Verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, that, that's the great accusation. You see, Stephen, you've committed blasphemy, you've uh, injured the temple, you've injured the law, you've injured Moses, you've injured God. Why? Because you're promoting a person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now you remember, truly, that is the contention in the book of Acts. You remember when Peter did a miracle and they asked, by what name? Or by what power do you do this? And Peter said, by the name of Jesus Christ. And then he proceeds to say, and there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Remember they had said that they were no longer to teach and to preach in this name. You remember what Peter said? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so again here, they're drumming up charges. Well, he's blaspheming against the temple. He's blaspheming against Moses. He's blaspheming against the law. He's blaspheming against God. But ultimately, what they're trying to get to is that he's a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's the accusation of the Sanhedrin. Now again, 
I bring those out because Peter, or Stephen, excuse me, Stephen is going to answer those charges. Although they are false charges, false accusations, false witnesses, he's going to answer, is Stephen attacking the temple? Is Stephen truly attacking the law? Is Stephen attacking Moses? This whole message is going to be an answer to those false accusations. And so we see the accusation of the Sanhedrin. But then secondly, we see the answer of Stephen. So in Acts 7 verse 1, the Bible says that the high priest says, Are these things so? So that's the accusations. We've dealt with them. But then we move over to verse 2, and the Bible says, And he says, so Stephen speaks and he says, Now notice, there is no name-calling. Um, there is no, if you would, um, now certainly Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost, but Stephen is not out of control. You see what he says? Men, brethren, fathers. Now this message, notice how he's going to end. Verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. That's how the message is going to end. But notice how he begins this message. He begins this message calmly, respectfully, because he is speaking on behalf of God. Uh, Stephen is not a man that is name-calling here. He is simply going to deliver them in a respectful manner the Word of God. What is amazing to us today, and perhaps there are some people who fit within, who identify as Christians, who, uh, if you would have that perspective where they come across as uh, with name-calling, and uh, even some people, they, they stand in, in, in pulpits where they claim to preach the Bible, and often they curse. But the truth is, as we find Stephen delivering her message, I believe this is an example to anybody who would be a preacher. To always preach in a calm manner. You see, Christianity is often represented with people, well, these people that are Christians, they're always unreasonable. You know, they're always emotional. They're always uh, uh, saying rash statements and so on. But the truth is, as we've seen in the book of Acts, the Christians in the book of Acts, the believers, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are not the ones who have lost their mind. The unbelievers... And acts are the ones who've lost their minds. The unbelievers are those who've beaten Peter, who are about to kill Stephen. Those who are denying the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel are those who are going to fume, gnash with their teeth, rush Stephen, drag him out of the city and stone him to death. And often people say, well, look, uh, we're living in the 21st century and the truth is uh, we, don't, we don't need to believe in the Bible anymore. We don't believe, need to believe in this Jesus Christ. After all, we're educated. We know better than they, uh, th than they did at that time. And those people back then that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, they, uh, they weren't really smart people and they, they kind of needed a crutch to get through life. And there's this sense today that those who are unbelievers are people who are rational, are people who have thought things through, but the truth is such unbelievers are as old as the gospel. 
Unbelieving, uh, uh, this uh, uh, idea of being an unbeliever is not anything new. It's as old as the gospel. And we find that the unbelievers in the book of Acts are those who were really unrational, while Stephen is very composed. Notice throughout this sermon, as he preaches this sermon, we find him including himself with those men who are part of the Sanhedrin council. Notice what he says in verse 2. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto, here it is, our father Abraham. What is he doing? He is including himself with all of the men part of the Sanhedrin council as Jews. Go down to verse um, 9. And he says, The patriarchs moved with envy. He's talking there about the story of Joseph and his brothers. Notice verse 11. Now, there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and Our fathers found no sustenance. Verse 12 again. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers. Verse 15. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers. Verse 19. The same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers. Notice verse 39, to whom our fathers would not obey. Verse 49, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. Verse 45, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. And so throughout his sermon, uh, Stephen uh, is very composed and actually he includes the men of the Sanhedrin council with himself and he says, our fathers, we are part of the same Jewish history. We have the same fathers, the same kindred, the same heritage, the same story. But then, Stephen makes a separation in his conclusion. Notice verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as, here it is, your fathers did... So do ye. Again, verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? So throughout the sermon, Stephen says, Our father, our fathers, our fathers, our kindred. But then he comes to the conclusion, he says, So we have the same history and the same heritage. But the truth is, I understand that history and that heritage different than you do. And then he says, Your fathers. You've done just like your fathers. So ultimately, Stephen says, I've done something different than my fathers. So there is an inclusion in the majority of the sermon. They were included by the same history, but yet at the same time, in the conclusion of this sermon, they were separated by their different responses to the same history. So what is the content of this message? Again, it's it's going to take some time to get through the sermon. This is a a basic overview of the sermon. But as we think about the content, let's look at the big picture. What is Stephen trying to do as he's preaching this sermon? He brings out a number of things. Now notice, we we have the, the joy in the message to see the conclusion. And the conclusion, it says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, 
Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So the sermon, as he concludes the sermon, the whole entire sermon is, to go, is going to point out time and time again how they today, as he's preaching the sermon, are just like their fathers. That's why he brings the whole history out. He's going to show them that their history testifies to what they are now and that they're just like their fathers. Now, what does he bring out? Let's look first of all in verse 9. The first time he talks about the patriarchs and the fathers, he's talking about the 12 tribes in verse 9. Again, remember, uh, after Jacob... The twelve tribes came out of that, and the verse 9, And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Now you remember, that is a reference to Genesis 37, in the account from verse 4 through verse 11. And the context of Genesis 37 is that, remember, Joseph spoke of a dream. It was a dream from God, and he told basically his brethren, they themselves interpreted that message to say that one day they would bow down to Joseph. Now Jacob didn't even understand it, but he says, but although he didn't understand, at first he, he doubted, but then he observed it and he, he reflected on that. But do you remember what the Bible says about those brothers in Genesis 37 and 11? His brethren envied him. That's where Steve, what Stephen is referring to. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. What is interesting is as we study in the New Testament and we ask ourselves, what is it that moved the religious leaders of the time of Jesus Christ to bring him to Pilate and to crucify him? Well, in Matthew 27, 18, the Bible says that Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered him. In Mark 15.10, the Bible says, For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. So see, Stephen is bringing that history, and he says, that Our patriarchs, our fathers, they, you remember, they moved with envy against Joseph. Well, what's been happening in the book of Acts? Well, you remember in chapter 5 of Acts, in verse 17, you remember here, as we're dealing here with Peter, in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible says, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. The word indignation is the same root Greek word uh, where we get the word envy. So they're moved against Peter, against Stephen. They're moved with envy, with indignation against them. And so Stephen in his sermon is pointing out that the patriarchs rejected Joseph as God's messenger. You remember the first time we read about their envy towards him is right after he told them their dreams. Shall we worship you? They hated him, the Bible says, even more. And so what Stephen brings out in the sermon is that the envy that they have towards Stephen, towards Peter, as they're moved with indignation, is the same pattern that you find in the patriarchs, who also moved with envy against Joseph. So he points out in the sermon that the patriarchs rejected Joseph as God's messenger. But also he goes on to say that Moses as well, Moses, who, who they claimed to be their father, who gave them the law, 
was himself rejected and refused as God's deliverer. You remember that? Notice what he says in Acts 7 verse 25. Acts 7.25, For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. What is Moses delivering them out of Egypt? The Bible says they understood not. Notice verse 35 of the same chapter. And this Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who may be a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And so we see that Moses was rejected and refused by the patriarchs, by the fathers, as God's deliverer. You see the pattern? He's telling them, you, our fathers rejected Joseph as God's messenger. They move with envy. So do you. Our patriarchs, our fathers, um, if you would, rejected God's deliverer. They refused God's deliverer in Moses. And so do you still do that today. Then he goes on to say that the children of Israel did not obey God's message. Notice verse 39. To whom our fathers would not obey. Now he's talking right after Mount Sinai. You remember the law was going to be given. And you remember what they said? Whatever God says, we will do. Remember when the law was given? They said, oh no, we, we, we cannot bear to hear those things that have been given to us. And they said, we don't want God to speak unto us. We just want Moses to speak to us. And the Bible says, notice verse 30, 39, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. So the children of Israel as a whole did not obey God's message. You see what... Stephen is saying, you're still doing that today. Just like your fathers. In the conclusion of this sermon, as he brings those things out and brings it to a conclusion, he's going to directly confront them in the end with the accusations that they are making against him. I want to make a number of remarks if you notice with me. Stephen is going to end talking about the tabernacle and the temple. He begins to talk about the tabernacle in verse 33, and he talks about Solomon building the house of God, and that would be the temple in verse 47. But notice, so verse 46, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Verse 48, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? You remember one, what was one of the accusations? He speaks against the temple. 
He, he speaks against the way we worship here in this temple. And Stephen is going to address this confrontation. Why? Because it is clear that the Jews had an inordinate affection for religious observances, for rituals, uh, for tradition, and they were no longer thinking about God. And Stephen looks at them, he says, God is not limited and confined to this temple. In the Old Testament, the Bible declares that uh, there is no house that can contain God. Even Solomon, in uh, 1 Kings 8.27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. You remember, that's what Solomon says. The heavens of heavens cannot contain God. And if the heavens of heavens cannot contain God, this house certainly cannot contain God. There's a bottle that fell out. And so, they had an inordinate affection for the temple and for uh, those rituals. In Matthew 23, you remember that's exactly what Jesus dealt with. You remember as Jesus Christ is confronting the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 16, He says, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty, ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. In other words, Jesus Christ pointing out to the scribes and the Pharisees that their concept, concept of the temple was all out of order. They were not thinking straight about God. They were not thinking straight about their worship of God. And so he says, basically in, in effect, You have the temple, but you don't know how to worship God. Now, this accusation of the Jew would be a serious accusation. Why? Because, you remember, the Jews who were part of the diaspora, who were outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, worshipped in their synagogues, and the Jews who were there in Jerusalem and in the Judea area would consider all the other Jews as lesser than them because they did not truly worship God in their synagogue because God could only truly be worshipped in the temple. And they reviled all of those other Jews that refused to come back to their country and lived in other countries because that's where the temple was. Why would they not live here? And so they disdain and they despise them. And now Stephen is saying to those Jews, you don't even know what you worship. You have it all wrong. God is not limited to this temple. You cannot confine God to this box. The heavens of heavens cannot contain them. And so he says, you have the temple, but you don't know how to worship God. He he tells them, you have the prophets, but you don't listen. He says, verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have have, have not your fathers persecuted? Now, let me address those who are mentioned in this sermon. Joseph. Moses are the two main ones that are addressed in this particular sermon. But you could think about all the other ones. 
about the prophets who were sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes and the kingdom was divided after the reign of Solomon. And then the southern uh, tribe of Judah, which made up Judah and was made up of Judah and Benjamin. Prophet after prophet. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Malachi, Obadiah, uh, uh, Joel. All these prophets were sent to those, uh, to those kingdoms to, uh, to say, God uh, wants you to repent. You need to come back to God. And guess what those prophets were? They were set aside, they were rejected, they were ignored. You remember when God sent Jeremiah, he said, you're going to go to a people, don't look at their faces because they're not going to listen to you, but I'm going to send you. Imagine being that type of preacher where God says, just so you know, nobody is going to listen, nobody is going to repent, but you still have to go and preach. (laughs) And so... He says, you have the temple, but you don't know how to worship God. You have the prophets, but you don't listen. But then he says, you have the law, but you don't keep it. You remember, they were boasting constantly as they were talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Abraham as our father. We have the law of Moses. And they were always glorying in the fact that they had the law. And they had completely misunderstood the purpose of the law. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Let me show you. This is not just something that Stephen is dealing with. This is something that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had dealt with. In Matthew chapter 5. And notice with me. And what happened is that the religious leaders of the day had confined to the law of God and had limited to the law of God to particular instances and they had altogether neglected the spirit of the law. And so what uh, Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, He says, um, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old. In other words, you see, You have heard by someone, namely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, you have heard that it was said by them of old. So you've been listening to what those Pharisees and scribes say about what our father said. And what do they say? Thou shalt not kill. Now is that what the Bible says? Certainly. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. In other words... But then he says, verse 22, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be uh, in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And so you see what, what, what Jesus said. Uh, the Pharisees, scribes, had limited the law. They had said, well, look, as long as you don't commit the act of murder, you're fine. You're not guilty. But Jesus, no, 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 it's not just about the act. Do you hate? Do you call your brother over here a fool? Then you are a murderer at heart. That is the spirit of the law, and they have totally missed that. He goes on, look at other examples. Verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so he's, uh, this is what the scribes and the Pharisees said, oh, Well, as long as you don't commit the act of adultery, you're guiltless, you're fine, you can go on and live in your way. And uh, Jesus says, No, no, it's the spirit of the law. 
If you lust, you are an adulterer at heart. There is the spirit of the law. But you see what they had done? They had confined the law uh, to a limited and narrow idea. And they had uh, altogether uh, discredited the spirit of the law. You see, the purpose of the law, as we see it in the New Testament, uh, is not uh, so that man can say, Well, I've never done this. I've never done that. Uh, I've never done this and the other. I've kept all these things from my youth up. That is not the purpose of the law. So that man can say, this is what I've done, and this is what I've not done. The purpose of the law is to show us that we cannot save ourselves. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law is a schoolmaster. Galatians 3.19 Wherefore then serveth the law? What is the purpose? What does the law serve? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. What was the law's purpose? It was to, uh, to add. It was added because of transgression uh, but it points us to Christ. The purpose of the law is not to say, oh yeah, I've done this, I haven't done this. The purpose of the law is to show, I'm guilty, I cannot do this, I need a Redeemer, I need a Savior. That's what Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. A man cannot and will never be justified by the law. All the law says is you're guilty. But they had reduced it to a religion of do's and don'ts. They had totally neglected the spirit of the law. You know who are the hardest people, the most difficult people to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, to become Christian? You know who are the hardest people to win to Christ? Are those who already think they are Christians. I'm a good person. I go to church. I do this, I do that. I don't do this. And the most, the, the, the most difficult people to convince that they need Christ is those who think uh, that they're just fine. Just like this Sanhedrin council who was there. Uh, we're keeping the law. We have Moses as our father and Abraham as our father. We have the temple worship. This is what God says. And Stephen says you've completely misunderstood everything. Our history. But you have corrupted the law of Moses. You've corrupted the worship of God. And as you've done in the past, you do not listen to the prophets. That's a summary of the message. But notice if you go back with me, Acts 7. Stephen says, uses one word, he says, Men, brethren, fathers. What's the next word? Hearken. That's how he begins. You know, I was thinking about that word hearken. That's an important word. In in its root, we could say it just simply means listen up. But think about the weight of this message. You see, the word hearken means hear me. 
It means give an audience to what I'm saying. It means please understand. The word hearken means this. It means come. Would you, would you come and let me teach you? It means to report something. And so he says hearken. What is included in this message as Stephen begins by saying, look, hearken, listen, come, pay attention, give me audience. You see, first, hearken means that this message is important. That's what it means. Listen, this is not just a speech. It's what you need. Stephen was not just accusing them. He was accusing them to bring them to a place where they would change their mind. About what? About their own history. About what they were doing and rejecting Jesus of Nazareth. So first, hearken means that this message is important. But secondly, hearken means that this message demands diligent consideration. As a matter of fact, as we see through the... I gave you an overview of the message, but what he does is he's going to mention a thing here, mention a thing here, mention a thing... If you would point, and then at the end he's going to bring it all together in a great conclusion. But all the details of this sermon are very important as they draw to a conclusion. And so Stephen, he knows what he is about to say. Under, As the Bible says, he was full of the Holy Ghost. He's going to preach a wonderful sermon. But what it tells us is that not only this uh, sermon is important, but it demands diligent consideration. And by the way, I, I, I never tried to come and preach a message with the Lord's help. That's just like, oh, well, you know, there's another message. If it comes from the Bible, it is important. And it also demands diligent consideration. The truth is, often people come to church and they're not really interested in listening. They just come and maybe they don't even pay attention and and they miss the substance and the truth of God's Word. So hearken means this message is important. It demands diligent consideration, but also thirdly, hearken means that this message must cause self-examination. In the word hearken is the word hear, but also means to come. In other words, what Stephen is trying to show them is, you need to change your mind. And Stephen is going to preach the sermon to show them, listen, sons, brethren, uh, fathers, What what does he tell them? Men, brethren, fathers, hearken. I have something you need to hear. But this message demands for you to examine yourself. By the way, later in Acts chapter 15, we're going to find that some Pharisees were part of the church of Jerusalem. The Bible says some of the Pharisees believed Now, whether it was here when Stephen preached this sermon, I don't know whether it was here or at a later time during another message, but it is clear that there are some people who perhaps were part of this council who did believe. You see, this sermon, by beginning with the word hearken, means this ought to cause a self-examination in your life. And this is a summary of this message. And by the way, of any message from the Bible that would be preached from any pulpit... That the message we preach is an important one. 
Therefore, it demands reverence and godly fear. That the message that we preach demands diligent consideration. That the message that we preach must always come to cause a self-examination. We don't come to church so that we can fill our minds and then move on and say, well, I've gained more knowledge today. No, there is the, the, an examining process where we judge ourselves and where we see, God, is, this, is, is there any of this in me? What is it, God, that you want to do in my heart and in my life? How can I become more like the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to examine yourself and see whether you are a Christian at all. And so as we begin this sermon, and I'm I'm done here, but we're going to begin the sermon. We see the accusation of the Sanhedrin, the answer of Stephen, and the attention to the sermon. And may the Lord help us as we embark on this journey, not to come to church, not ever to, as these people of the Sanhedrin Council came, let us not get into those religious robotic duties, those rituals, coming to church, leaving church, but remaining unchanged, unaffected. Just as if church and religion is something we kind of tack on in our lives and add to just because, you know, in case we need it in the future. That's not it at all. And so may the Lord help us as we think about this great sermon to, uh, from Stephen to hearken. Let's pray.